Welcome to the Panza Panza Forum. In the Yoruba language, the word panza is usually injected into poetry to express an uncomfortable, uncensored and inconvenient truth. The Panza Panza Forum is candid conversations about the life of African immigrants in America as it relates to their adaptation to their new home. While some may find it easy to integrate and can balance between retaining the original African culture while accepting the culture of their new home, many continue to struggle to find a balance between both worlds. Hello and welcome to Panza Panza Live. This is a podcast where we discuss the lives of African immigrants and their assimilation into Western society as they raise younger generations in a country that is quite different from their own. We also explore the experiences of children of immigrants as they balance the African and Western cultures. We present to you this informative, interesting, and expansive dialogue about the intricate experiences of African immigrants in America. Okay, welcome to Pansa Pansa Live Podcast. I'm your host, Kemi Serike, and today I'm having conversation with Oludara Ade, a psychiatrist, social worker, and a psychotherapist based in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to Pansa Pansa Conversation. I'm so Thank delighted you. to have you on this Thank platform you. to share your experience about growing up in America as a child of an immigrant, I believe I'm right, and yes. as a mental health provider to educate our community about mental health awareness. So thank you mm-hmm. for coming here and I would like for you to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background to our audience as to where you were born, where you spend most of your childhood and adult life. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. My name is Oludara. Um, I do go by Dara, but I recently decided over the last couple of years since 2017 that I will most likely I will be going by Oludara because that's my registered uh, name as a social worker for the state of California. And before that, I was a journalist for, you know, about a decade. So I grew up in New Jersey. I was born in New York, but my family, we went back to Africa. We went to Nigeria and we traveled around because my father had a job that would put him in different places in Nigeria and Europe. So we mainly stayed in Nigeria with both my parents their family is from Nigeria. So when I turned five, my family decided to move to America. And while my dad still worked in Africa for a little bit, basically we moved to Nigeria and I've been in Nigeria ever since I was about five or six in the mid nineties. And yeah, that's pretty much it. That's quite interesting. So can you remember the time since you were five years old, have you gone back to Nigeria? No, I have not gone back to Nigeria. I want to, but it just hasn't happened. It just hasn't yeah. happened. It can be quite difficult to get to Nigeria. So. I know. I know what you mean. So your dad still lives there? No. My dad lives in New Jersey. Okay. No, my family lives in New Jersey right now. Oh, okay. So you still mm-hmm. come back and forth to New Jersey to see them from time to time? 
time to time, yeah. And also, a lot of my family, particularly on my mom's side, they are kind of all over the globe, which is very common for Nigerians. <laughs> I would say most of my family is a little bit just all over the globe now. We're not just based in Nigeria. So, so did you remember some memory living in Nigeria when you were five years old? Absolutely. I went to a Nigerian school. I believe it was called Usle. And then my parents transferred me to an American international school. And I was there for a little bit. Oh, okay. Wow. That's quite interesting. So many of the conversation that I have here, because many times I have many first generation, I'll call first generation, some call it second generation like you, coming on this platform. And part of the conversation is talking about the struggle of growing up in an immigrant home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the challenges of being the first generation as a child of a Nigerian immigrant. Yes, yes, yes. I've had many of our kids, you know, they come in, they talked about how much the pressure that they feel mm-hmm. from the parents and uh, the lack of the parents understanding some of their struggle. Of yes, yes, yes. I think I have a unique experience, but also a common experience for people who are first generation or I like said, or second generation, but I will call it first generation is that I'm a black American, but I'm of Nigerian descent. Like I know I'm of Nigerian descent. And so in my household, it's very Nigerian culture, but then, you know, you leave your household and then it's American culture and it can be hard because you want to live a certain way. You want to be able to just explore yourself. And sometimes your parents are stuck in the Nigerian culture of how ways, how things should be. It's very, very, very school focused. I was definitely school driven. And thankfully, you know, school was never really a struggle for me. So thankfully, I always got good grades and whatnot. But I always had that pressure to like get really good grades. But also, I didn't really understand the Black American experience because my parents didn't talk about it. Because you don't really talk about race when you're in Nigeria because it's like everybody's Black or, you know, we're African. But in America... It's very interesting. My family made it very well known that I was Nigerian. They're like, you're not just African-American, you're Nigerian-American. And sometimes I feel like that distinction, which is absolutely true, I'm definitely Nigerian-American and I identify as so, but it's almost as a way to build a barrier between being African-American and being Nigerian, being perceived as an African-American and being perceived as a Nigerian-American which ultimately is just things were created by white supremacy, this view of what black people should are like. And so oftentimes something I've noticed with my family and other Nigerian American immigrants and, you know, children of immigrants is that you begin to be like, well, why aren't black people acting a certain way? And you try to distinct yourself from them. But in reality, you know, in this country, in America, everyone looks at you as one. Yeah. To a degree. To a degree, everyone looks at you. When it comes to skin color, you look the same. You're black. Yeah, that's true. And that comes from the experience whereby I've talked a little bit as a parent myself. Okay. We don't know what it is to be black in America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so it's mm-hmm. part of those challenges that mm-hmm. if you don't know something, there's no way of teaching your children. Right. How to maneuver that. Or the only thing you could say is that, okay, go to school, get your education, make sure you stay away from trouble. Because if you make any mistake, it could derail 
the whole family. So mm-hmm. a lot of time is much more focusing on education. Mm-hmm. Actually, I read a book last year or two years ago, and I did a review on my website. The title of the book is called A Particular Kind of a Black Man, mm-hmm. whereby this young boy at his age at that time, very young, asking his Nigerian father, can you tell me what it is to be black in America? And the mm-hmm. father said, I don't know what it is to be black in America. Yeah. But he yeah. have him reading books. He have him watching Brian Gumbo, Sidney Poitier, that mm-hmm. this is what it is to be black in America. Yeah, my father, I think, tried more than my mother. He definitely had, he had all the black magazines in my household. He always had the Essence, Ebony, Black Enterprise, Black Barbie dolls. He always, he always makes sure he bought black Barbie dolls. I remember one year I wanted this life-size Barbie and he didn't get it. And then he got it the next year. And he, I remember he told me the reason I got it a year later is because I wanted to get the black one and they didn't have the black one. My father, I think definitely tried more because he, unlike my mother came to undergrad and graduate school in the United States while my mom went to Europe. But I think they definitely did not understand. And it's like, how do I explain that? I experienced something mean or rude, but I don't know what it was. And for them, it'll be like, oh, they must think you're just not smart. When really it's like, no, they're racist. They're treating me differently because I'm black. Yeah, a lot of times we don't even know the code of what Mm -hmm. is racist, what is not. And I've had a conversation with even some parents whereby the children comes home and say, oh, this is what is done to me in school. Instead of actually acknowledging it, they say, just ignore them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you cannot just ignore because it continues. Right, right. It's, it's not back in Nigeria whereby you feel like, okay, just ignore them or I'm going to go and talk to the parents and see what we mm-hmm. can do. So what would you say are the benefits of growing up in a Nigerian immigrant home in America? Ooh, that's a good question. I will say the benefit is that I actually do feel, I will say I noticed this. There's a different sense of solidity or confidence in my identity as a black person because I know exactly where my ancestors are from. I can go back to my country and I know people. I can do that. If I were to go back to Nigeria, I would know people there. I would have places to stay. I would be able to trace back my lineage, you know, generations after generations. And that almost builds a certain sense of like confidence as a black person in America. Whereas, you know, if you're a descendant of enslaved people, you're lost. You might feel a little bit lost. And this is also something like friends who are black have told me. They're like, I feel a little bit lost because I don't really know who my people are beyond my enslaved great great grandfather or grandmother or something like that. And that's really heartbreaking. It's really, really heartbreaking. And it angers me too. It makes me sad because it's like to be able to, you know, even though I don't really, I don't know Yoruba and my parents are to blame for that. My dad will take, he's always like, I know it's my fault. Because my mom spoke different languages, but she always only spoke English at home. And also when my parents were in Nigeria, um, something my dad told me later on, though, it was like when he was growing up in Nigeria, they weren't allowed to speak Yoruba because it wasn't the proper language. And that that for me was like, wait a minute. 
Mm-hmm. So you guys are also experiencing some like colonization yeah. and some form of oppression within your own country, mm-hmm. you know, and <laughs> we need to, you know, that's almost similar to here. So it just never occurred to my parents to speak Yoruba to me at home because to them, it was like, they just learned it naturally. Whereas me, I didn't because I wasn't around anyone who's speaking it. But yeah, I definitely think there's a sense of like self-assuredness when you grow up within an immigrant house as a black person in America. That's good. And also the food. You know, yes, the food. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where is your mom from? She is from, I think her family is from Abuja. No, oh, okay. Ibadan. I think it's a Ibadan. And yeah. then my dad's family is from Ede. Ede, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah. So they're both Yoruba anyway. Yes, yes, uh-huh. yes. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to chime in into what you said regarding the speaking English mm-hmm. and the language in Nigeria because of the colonization. You know, Nigeria has over 200 dialects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even within the Yoruba, there's different dialects among the Yoruba too. Oh, wow. If wow. somebody from, I'm Yoruba myself, okay, mm-hmm. born in Lagos. Actually, my mother is from Ibadan. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is speaking Yoruba and I'm from Lagos, they're speaking in Ibadan, tonation. Somebody from um, Ondo, when they're speaking Yoruba, I have a friend that they are from Ondo, they're speaking Yoruba. I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> oh, wow. I wow. cannot even, I don't even mm-hmm. know what they are saying, but they are also Yoruba. Then you have the Ijebus, whereby the pronunciation is completely different. Mm. So you see the diversity. And then the European came and they lumped people of different yeah. ethnic group and they put them together. Yeah. And they impose English language. When I was growing up too, they call the African language vernacular. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And they tell you don't speak vernacular in vernacular. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So even back in Nigeria, there's some homes that the children grew up in Nigeria, they were born in Nigeria, the parents, they, but they consider themselves to be elites and they don't speak mm-hmm. the traditional language. The oh, wow. Language. Wow. This is how much Europeans, you know, colonization mm-hmm. are psychic and the sense of our pride in who, who we are. To the extent when I was in school, if you don't pronounce certain things well or your sentence it's not right whereby you, your grammar is, is incorrect. People make fun of you mm. as a result of that. And so this is part of what many of us who are here as a parent brought from home. So I just want you to know about that background. Of wow. So maybe from your generation will be the one that will re-educate. Yeah. And talk yeah. about the sense of pride of your language and your culture mm-hmm. to actually teach. I mean, there's some people in Nigeria that they tend to change their accent. You think they, that you're talking to the Americans when you're talking to, <laughs> <laughs> when you're talking to them <laughs> because they completely they follow the American accent because they don't want their Nigerian accent to actually show or anywhere, any part of Africa they come from. I'm, I'm just talking about English speaking Africa. Then you talk about the French colonized countries in Africa. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because there are more people who speak French in Africa than the whole Europe. Wow. <laughs> wow. 
Yeah, when I went to France a couple years ago, I noticed that there are a lot of there are a lot of Africans there. I mean, it's right there. It's very common. But wow, yeah, it makes sense why I didn't speak it. Even when we lived in Nigeria, I began to pick it up, but it wasn't from my parents. It was from maybe family members who visited and didn't speak English. It was from some hired help, whether it was some maids or whatnot. Even when I went to the Nigerian school for a little bit, they spoke some English, but they also spoke Yoruba and I just began to pick it up. But then quickly I went to the American International School and I didn't pick it up at all. Yeah, so that's, that's um, definitely one thing I want to learn. <laughs> well, you know, it's not too late. Yes. <laughs> it's not too late. So you already mm-hmm. identify yourself as a uh, Nigerian American. Mm-hmm. So you have no problem in that identity. Yeah. In terms of yeah. understanding that you're black, as well mm-hmm. as you have this heritage of a Nigerian heritage that you continue to be proud of. So when you were in college, growing mm-hmm. how do you think your African background or the background that you grew up with affect how you navigate through the college life i'm talking about social life in college how do you struggle into the predominant culture well i definitely was still not in a space of like black pride i think i was still very much so like i'm nigerian american i'm not just black not really connecting to the African diaspora yet. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't join the Black Student Union. I had Black friends, but I didn't join a Black sorority or, you know, I didn't go to the Black things that were happening on campus. And that was, I guess, I wasn't really connected to that yet. I also think undergrad college is a time you're trying to find yourself and discover yourself. So I just, I was focused on other things. I was very school focused. I was also very like job focused. Okay. Because that is something that is very pushed in an African household, a Nigerian household. It's Mm -hmm. like, you need to get a job. So you got to go to school, you got to learn, you got to, you know, and so I was just very like focused. Um, so I interned a lot at different magazines and whatnot. Once I decided to do, be a journalism student after I decided I wasn't going to be a doctor or lawyer. <laughs> okay. Because when I got to, the reason I, I went to Hofstra University in Long Island, the reason I chose that school was because my parents wouldn't let me go to this. I wanted to go to LIM, which I think it's in New York. It's like a mark, fashion marketing school. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, I wanted to be in fashion. And my parents were like, that is not a real school. <laughs> so I was like, fine. I'll go to Hofstra on an island because at the time I was a athlete. I was a competitive cheerleader and they have a really good cheerleading team. And I was like, well, if I'm going to have to become a doctor or lawyer, I'm going to go to a school where I can cheer and do what I want to do. So I didn't make the cheerleading. Well, they have to bargain. Yes, exactly. They have to balance. And then, so I didn't make the cheerleading team, but then I also had decided that, you know what, I was given another chance to try out again and they were like, you'll make it. But I was just like, you know, I don't want to do that. I want a different experience. So I went to Hofstra and I just decided to focus on my studies. Yeah. So I was mainly focused on my studies and experiencing life being away from my household. 
Would you say when you were in college, you're growing up in an African home where the sense of discipline, how you relate to adults, affect the way you interact with your professors? Yeah, definitely. Because it's almost like the professor is the authoritarian, like has all the authority. You don't want to do any wrong, but quickly you learn like I'm an adult-ish. <laughs> so I do have some free reign. But I remember it was hard. It was really hard because I always got good grades. Mm -hmm. And then you get into college and there's just all these extra factors. So when I was in my freshman year, I was in a chemistry class. My brain does not like science. I don't like it. Um, maybe if I spend more time with it, I'll like it. But I really, it's not me. So I remember being in my chemistry class the first week and I was just like, I don't, I don't know what she's talking about. What is this professor talking about? And I called home and like my mom was like, how's school? And I was like, it's fine. But really I was miserable because I knew I was going to fail this class. And as a child of an immigrant failing, <laughs> failing I was like no I cannot fail and I was telling I have an older brother and I was telling him and I was like I'm miserable I hate this class I don't know what to do and I know mom dad want me to be a doctor blah 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 and my mom was listening in I didn't know that oh, wow. so when I hung up the phone my mom called and was like hey like if you don't like this then don't do it so I was like, I was like, yeah, I hate it. I, I'm miserable. I need to drop it because I'm going to fail. <laughs> and that gave you a lot of relief. Yes. That's why I reassure you and I say, it's okay for you mm -hmm. if you want to do it. You know, and the reason why I asked you that question relating to professor, because in an African home, there's a lot of discipline whereby, you know, as an adult, there's certain things you don't say. Authority figure, there's certain things you don't say. So one thing that some of our children who are in college may experience is that being that they come from that environment whereby you don't have conversation back and forth mm -hmm. with authority figure and they feel like, you know, they cannot actually challenge what is being said in class because they didn't come from a home where they challenge, you mm -hmm. know, what being said to them. That's actually a good point. And as I look back, I will agree with that. I will definitely agree with that, that I definitely did not challenge a lot in class all my life. I definitely was just like the good student. And I think in college, I definitely was like just the good student who didn't question anything. And then sometimes that was a detriment because I wouldn't ask questions and you need to ask questions to clarify things. But if I didn't understand it immediately, I would often try to figure it out myself. But yeah, I never had trouble looking in the eye or anything like that. I think growing up as an American as well, and I think I felt comfortable, you know, yeah. around authority, but I definitely, when it came to speaking up, I wasn't the best. Yeah. So because, you know, that's part of what I'm trying to preach to a lot of parents mm -hmm. in terms of having, because we grew up in a uh, society whereby when we are growing up to is whatever the adults say, you just follow, you know, mm -hmm. it's not a matter mm -hmm. of, you know, talking back. You could excuse mm -hmm. yourself and say, if you have an opinion, <laughs> that mm -hmm. they actually want to listen to you. you right. Know? So before becoming a clinical social worker, you said mm -hmm. you were a writer. Mm -hmm, editor mm -hmm. at uh, Cosmopolitan and managing editor at XXL. 
Mm-hmm. So can you briefly talk about your experience working at uh, Cosmopolitan as an editor and what motivates you to change your career to become a mental health specialist? Um, many things. You know, I went into that industry because I wanted to help other girls like me. Because when I was growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s, magazines were a thing and I wanted to work at magazines and magazines were where I, could, I was able to talk to people basically or people were able to talk to me so I wanted that I wanted to connect with other girls and other women so working at Cosmo was an interesting experience definitely it was very stressful very traumatic I will say that because I was writing a lot I was writing a lot of articles I was the only black writer editor person there for Yeah, for my whole department towards the end. I worked for the website. I started as a temporary assistant, and then I eventually became a hired-on assistant, and then I was a web editor, and then I was promoted to associate, and then I left. And I left because the website was going in a direction where the manager was definitely clearly racist, and at the time, I just did not realize it because, again, when you grow up, with Nigerian parents, like you don't, you don't really see things as racism until you have a real awakening. And so it was just, it became very difficult. I began experiencing things that many black women experience in the workplace where it's like, you're given a lot of work, you're given instructions that aren't really clear. You're given demands that are way above everyone else more is expected from you and as a person who you know you grow up to be very obedient i was never really one to push back and so i decided to quit because one i was living at home um two my mother was in the hospital dying at the time i basically had a bit of perspective and i was just like why am i writing because cosmos a very fun like surface level publication so i was like why am i focusing on this allowing this person and this job to stress me out when my mom is literally in the hospital like you know about to die so i basically decided i'll just quit and then then shortly a couple weeks later my mom passed away on new year's eve so this was in 2013 so yeah so how have you been able to cope with your mom's death um it's been hard definitely it's definitely been hard because our relationship was very interesting in the sense that, you know, as I'm an adult now and I can look back and see what my mom was going through as an immigrant and an immigrant who had a husband who wasn't in the country all the time, um, which that was my normal. I don't know if that's normal for other families, but it was my normal for up until I was about 10, until my dad came to live permanently in the U.S. It was all work-related. It wasn't like immigration status or anything related. Both my parents are citizens. And, you know, she was taking care of me and my older brother. And I just had all these other expectations of me, pressures from my home to be a good student, and then pressure from the outside world to kind of like fit in and try to figure out how I fit in. So our relationship was complicated. And then she got sick when I was in high school. So it was like, she got sick with rheumatoid arthritis and then she became disabled, she couldn't move. So it was like, I became her caregiver in high school and then in college as well. And when I wasn't at school, I was at home. So it was almost like I went from being a child to a caregiver. 
So I never got to experience my mom as a woman, you know, but she has sisters. So, and a brother um, alive. So it's like, those are like my, my auntie moms. I like to call them her sisters, like my auntie moms. Yeah. It's definitely hard. Like being a woman, an adult and not having my mother to like, you know, ask these questions that I can finally ask because when you're a child and you, you can't ask your Nigerian mom certain things, you know, they're like, yeah, don't, don't ask me that. Like, you know, like, um, you're the child, but now as an adult, it's like, okay, well, I want to have these conversations with you, but I can't. It's very heartbroken and I'm so sorry to hear that. Mm. And I know our spirit is right around you, you know, yes. that's what we've yes. been saying, that she's protecting you. And uh, it's sad that you have to go through all that. And even that's one thing with a lot of us parents as an immigrant, even my children also talked about that too, mm-hmm. whereby they say, oh, you don't express yourself. You don't express your feelings. Mm-hmm. So it's for me to actually look at them and say, I might not want to put the burden of what I'm going through on you. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it might give you, you start thinking about the welfare of your, uh, your mm-hmm. parents instead mm-hmm. of actually the parents also want to focus on taking care of the child. And mm-hmm. mind you, many of, of us who are immigrant parents, like you guys were born here, you don't have the accent. Many of mm-hmm. us go through a lot of discrimination. Yeah. Not only regarding color of our skin, African immigrants are seen as below, as below. Yeah, yeah. So when yeah. you come home, you know, you go through that outside, then you come home. A lot of time, we come from a society whereby the respect for the elders is very important. And somebody, mm-hmm. that person, or somebody just talks to you as if you are beneath. Yeah. Just like you said, you know, yeah. where you're working at Cosmopolitan, you know, whereby mm-hmm. this person just gave you extra work. A lot of African immigrants do experience that. Like they mm-hmm. always say Africans, you know, especially Nigerians were the most educated. Yeah. But then we are not the most, you know, high paid. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's no advancement, even There's if no advancement. all education. You mm-hmm. find many Nigerians who have masters and PhD. They're mm-hmm. working all this job because wherever they are, they're mm-hmm. looking at them, even because of their accent, that they don't actually belong. Right. And it doesn't right. come only from institution of oppression. It also comes from other minority who will look mm-hmm. down at you that you are nobody. Yeah, that's true. So that's mm-hmm. part of it. And uh, being that, a lot of time, I'm going to refer back to the book that I read, a particular kind of a black man. I hope you pick up the book. You know, I'm just, I recommend it for people because it makes New York, New York Times bestseller. Mm-hmm. His father was, a, he was an engineer. Mm-hmm. And after graduating college, okay, he couldn't find a job. He was mm-hmm. a mechanic. He sold ice cream on the street. He did so mm-hmm. much to make yeah. it. But what he was blaming it on was because of his accent. Mm-hmm. Because he wasn't just experiencing racism, he was also experiencing this discriminated against because mm-hmm. he's an immigrant with an accent. Yeah, that's real. And I definitely can feel for my parents, you know, experiencing that. I can, when I look back, I can see that. And I think in a lot of immigrant households, as I think about other friends who are also like children of immigrants, there's emotional neglect to the child because of that. And I think it's because the parent is experiencing, which now I would identify as a mental health crisis in a sense, that they are being discriminated against 
someone's being prejudiced towards them and they don't really understand like what is going on and or how to deal with it Mm -hmm. so they may neglect the emotions of their children unknowingly that is something i did experience growing up as much as i love love my mom and love my dad it's like yeah there's definitely some emotional neglect which led me to feel like i have to do everything on my own which leads to being super independent which is not good which is also a common thing for black women to be like oh i have to be very independent i need to rely on myself that is a lot and for you to go through all that uh, at a very young age, mm-hmm. it is so much of a pressure because let's assume you're back home or you are in a place whereby, you know, there's a lot of other family members who, who actually chip in and be a co-parent or also mm-hmm. help you and lift all those things away from you and say, okay, yeah. I'm going to take charge of this. I'm going to do this. You know, don't worry, you are a child because that's what they will do back home. Right, right. And then, you know, the parents come here and they don't really have community. Yes. I would say a lot of Nigerian immigrant parents, Nigerian immigrant families, they don't have community unless they move to an area where they built it in. So, like, we lived in New Jersey and we have family friends who, you know, now I call aunt, uncle, cousins, whatever, mm-hmm. in Staten Island. Mm-hmm. And that's like the closest to the Nigerian community that we have. New York was the closest to being interacting with anyone else who was Nigerian, but a lot of times Nigerian immigrants are very isolated with themselves. It's like they're on their own in their own community, which is why I think a lot of Nigerians move to Texas now, especially like Houston. Um, there's so many Nigerians. When my dad and I went there a couple of years ago for my cousin's wedding, my dad was so excited to be able to get suya. He was like, I'm going to have suya every day. And because there's like a restaurant chain that offers suya. He was so excited. But, you know, you can't find that in a lot of different places. That's so true. And it makes you stronger. So Mm -hmm. what actually motivates you to go into mental health? I think I've always been interested in mental health because I could see the struggle between my parents and I when it came to communicating and with other immigrant families and other families, I could see the trouble there was with like communication. And I think I've always just been interested in mental health. And I did go through my own mental health issues after losing my mom. And I began to see that the industry I was in was really burning me out. I was very depressed. I was tired. I wasn't in love with what I was doing. And I didn't see any mobility in that industry. And when I began to explore my options and a lot of my friends around me were like, you can go back to school, you could go study social work. I began to explore, began to explore. And I was like, well, if I have to go back to school, I have to go back to school. As a child of Nigerian parents, it's like, if I gotta go back to school, I gotta go back to school. Like, it's no big deal. What's another degree? Like, literally, you know? So I began looking around and I wanted to look for a school that didn't require me to take an exam. And I looked at USC, which is here in in Los Angeles, and they have a good program. It ranks high in the country and they are very holistic. They look at the whole package. They don't just look at test scores or grades and I visited and I fell in love with California and being away from the East Coast and I knew it was going to be a good change. So I applied and I got in and they offered me a scholarship and I was like, okay, 
I'm doing this. And as I got here, it honestly just kind of solidified everything from having to take care of my mother. And also, like, I think my mother's health issues were the result of other things, other factors, but also I think as Black women, as, you know, immigrant women, often we neglect ourselves. And so I could see that in my mother. I saw that in my mother. And I'm not saying she's to blame for her rheumatoid arthritis, but she neglected her health. And I think that's just a common thing among Black and African women. We just work, work, work. We're focused on other things because we have to. But in the end, it can literally cost us our life. So I was also just very interested in helping black women just feel better and i think i was not gonna go get my doctor i was not gonna become a doctor so <laughs> i was like this is this is close this is kind of close to it i'm pushing yeah I know, right i mean i may get a phd eventually so it's like i should have just gone to medical school <laughs> you know but i think this allows me to really educate and help women who look like me really be better and take care of themselves, you know, in spite of however the world is treating us. So as soon as I got here, um, because I'm a woman of faith, it was just kind of like God lit up the path. It was like opportunities came. I got a job before I graduated. Um, You know, it's just like things have been easier than they were when I was in journalism. And I genuinely like what I'm doing. So, and sometimes in life, life has to go through certain paths to bring mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. the ultimate calling. Yes, yes, that's exactly it—the ultimate calling. And it's apparent now to me that my ultimate calling is to be a steward, a messenger for Black women to heal themselves, to be on their own self-healing journey, their own self-care journey. So, what do you do as a psychiatric social worker? And do you also have a private practice? No, I don't have a private practice yet. I am a associate clinical social worker for the state of California. What that basically means is that I'm obtaining my hours and then I have to take an exam and then I become a licensed clinical social worker. So I'm at the end of that. I am preparing for my exam. So I work as a psychiatric social worker for a government agency here. And I basically work in the public mental health sector. So I see people primarily who have severe and persistent mental illnesses, but usually is like people who have mental illnesses like schizophrenia, personality disorders, bipolar, severe depression, just really, really, really severe where it impacts them obtaining housing, you know, maintaining relationships, maintaining work. That is the population I mainly work with. So, and in California, that's mainly individuals who are unhoused. So that's mainly my, the population I work with, but with the pandemic and the increase of mental health issues, I'm also seeing people who have regular jobs, but are just experiencing mental health issues because the pandemic has been very traumatic for everyone. You don't work in hospital base? No, I work in a clinic. I work in a clinic. 
I like to describe my clinic though as like an emergency room, like urgent care, like mental health urgent care. Um, that's the best way to describe it because we we are essential. Uh, you know, we didn't shut down when the the pandemic started. I still go into the office every three weeks. I work from home two weeks, but it's a clinic, and so I do therapy. I do case management. You know, I assist in making sure clients are connected to their psychiatrist to get their medication. So do you- you also work with many people who also have drug issues. Yes, a lot of my clients have substance issues as well. Or the population I work with, yeah, a lot of people have what we call comorbidities and dual diagnosis that include substance issue. And especially if you are unhoused, unfortunately, substance usually is involved. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. That's what the job of a therapist entails. And knowing that, I hope later on you'll start having your own practice as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Because uh, from your background, your experience growing up in an immigrant home, I think you have, you have a lot of impact. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because of your own experience to, to mm-hmm. actually help many immigrant communities to actually focus on mental health and, yeah. and use your own story as a way to mm-hmm. actually help them out and say, you know what, I went through it myself, you know, and also mm-hmm. educate member of our community, especially parents, you know. Yeah, because they don't like to talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even my father sometimes, he's like, he's like, you know, when he found out I was going to therapy, he's like, what's wrong with you? And it's just like working out. I need to work out my brain, my mind. And I think you're right, especially Nigerian community, we're like mental health, no mental health, like, you know? Yeah. So. Because home is not something when they feel like the stigma of mental health is somebody who is actually being on the street, okay? Yes. Talking to themselves. Yes. Uh-huh. So in many aspects of that, that's what they actually see as somebody suffering from mental health. So yeah. as opposed well to go to work, come back, you know, you're a little bit down. No, that's not mental health. That shouldn't be an issue. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in my family, one of my uncles on my mother's side who we don't really talk about he had schizophrenia and it's something i didn't find out until much much later because we just didn't talk about it and i don't know they may not be happy i'm telling this but i also i i'm very much so like we need to talk about things and also be honest and be like okay well you know he had his issues Mm -hmm. and he had his i don't and i don't even know the full details because you know that's just how nigerian families are we don't really talk about it until I asked, I had to ask for an assignment. I had to ask my aunts and be like, they're like, yeah, I think he, we think he had schizophrenia and he was taking medication. He was on and off and there may have been drug issues and all these things. So yeah, but even that is like, we just don't really talk about it. And it's yeah. like the person with the mental health issue is shunned, but mental health isn't just the extreme, you know, it's the little things. It's the little things that add up and then can be extreme. It's the constantly being made fun of about your accent every day. It's someone questioning your existence just simply because you're black. Those things add up and create trauma and you know just like somebody could be healed physically you could also be healed not okay mentally and there's nothing wrong with that yes exactly there's nothing wrong with that nothing wrong Mm -hmm. with that you know because our brain is so complex Mm -hmm. and we have to actually be able to see 
when we are not okay to seek, yes. to seek the professional exactly. and thank God we are in a country that actually have those kind of services available. Mm-hmm. So how do you think we could effectively bring mm-hmm. mental health awareness to African immigrant community? I'm not just mm-hmm. talking about Nigerians. Yeah, that's a really good question. Maybe starting with the local community, maybe starting with the churches, because Nigerians are very, very religious. <laughs> that would probably be the best way, starting with the local community and encouraging others to kind of get educated on what mental health is. Yeah. Maybe that's the start, to yeah, start to introduce it. Like, what is mental health, you know? It's not just being crazy. It's trying to explain what it is because a lot of communities don't know. The communities don't really know what it is. And they don't think they need to do it because they have God whether you're Muslim or Christian. Like they just feel like I have God I'm fine. But it's beyond that. It's beyond that. What are some of the common stigma have you come across among, you know, Nigerians or African or people of color in general? When it comes to mental illness, that it doesn't exist. <laughs> well, or or well, when you say stigma, well, that if you have mental health issues, that something is wrong with you, mm-hmm. and that there's a reason you have mental health issues. I mean, obviously, yes, but like, if you have mental health issues, then you must be cast away. You must not talk about it because. It means that something went wrong really bad. Well, something was really bad and that you're ultimately you're to blame for your mental health issues. But that's not true. That's not true. And just like you can't always control getting a stomach ache, you can't control when you're going to be feel very depressed or anxious. Thank you so much for that, because we have to bring that awareness. And actually, I'm doing a book review on a book title. I think I'm lying, but I'm telling the truth. Mm. It's written by a Nigerian Mm -hmm. who was brought here at a very young age about her own suffering with uh, bipolar disorder. Mm. And she actually also went deep into her mother. And she felt like the reader just has to read the book and justify whether her mother is actually suffering from mental health issues. Yeah, it's kind of, let me say, the mother went through her own trauma, her own childhood trauma, and reflect back on the family, whereby even what this young lady went through may not actually, I don't know, maybe came from the parents, but also that contributes to things anyway. Mm -hmm. So in terms of our community, when we're talking about sometimes what parents actually with their own intergenerational trauma that they have not really addressed, Mm-hmm. How much impact does that have to do also with the children developing? So much because we don't talk. Now, do you mean just particularly with Nigerian? Well, immigrants? I would say people of color because, you know, mm-hmm. your experience is a Nigerian, but you could use that as an example. Definitely impacts because it, with the parent, it impacts how they parent. And sometimes if there's not an explanation of what the trauma was, there isn't an understanding of why mom or dad is behaving a certain way. And also sometimes I think the way I see it a lot is that when it comes to parents, they can be difficult. So I'll use the example of hitting, you know, well, I hit my child because I used to get hit and I turn out fine. 
Okay, but did you? Because now you're hitting your child and you didn't like that, but now you're passing it on. You're passing on the same traumas that you went through to your child. Now your child is going to be fearful of their parent. Now your child is going to have anxiety and PTSD in relationships because their mom and or dad was hitting them. And I think what happens is that as you grow up, I'll speak for parents, is that they often forget the traumas they went through and they often forget that it comes out in different ways in relationships so that can definitely be passed on anxieties depression all types of things so and we often look at it as like culture oh in our household we just don't talk about things we're private but really we have a culture of secrecy the trauma of secrecy because there are things that go on in our household that are not okay one thing that i see and i tend to correct people of my age group or I come across some people in, within our community whereby they, if a child or a friend's child saying they're going through something and they dismiss it and say, what do you think you're going through? Do you know what I went through back home? Do you yeah. know what this person went through back home? And I had to tell someone, I said, you were talking about your own trauma. Yeah. Imagine if somebody else came in when you were talking about your own trauma and tell you what did you think you're going through? I said, we're not in competition about trauma. No, no, exactly. And when that happens, that's a parent's inner child coming out, being like, oh, no one cared about me. Let me tell you what happened to me. Maybe someone else can finally care about me. And you're putting that on the child. And that's not fair for the child because the child just comes into this world to grow and the parent's job is to help them grow and not necessarily push on them their own traumas and their own experience and you know and what you shared that's a really great example because it's like in that moment the parent is invalidating what the child is going through and basically creating that cycle again of the child thinking that oh I can invalidate my own experience. What I'm going through is not that big of a deal. And that can lead to ignoring yourself, not listening to your intuition, not listening to yourself, not just really pushing your needs aside because you think you don't matter because your parent basically told you you don't matter. That's really interesting. And I've come across, you know, been on uh, social media, people talk about culturally sensitive therapy. Mm, okay, yeah which is a new phenomenon that I'm seeing now. And I think maybe, you know, I'm just throwing it out for you there. Maybe when you start having your own practice. Yeah. Well, we call it cultural competency, but it's also can be called cultural humility where you have a sense of like, I am aware that there are different cultures. I'm also aware that I don't know every culture and I am not afraid to ask questions or educate myself so I don't burden the person whose culture I'm not aware of with the job of educating me, but also not be afraid to ask this person, tell me more about your culture. You know, so you can learn. It allows you to be open to other people's culture. I'll speak in the therapist uh, client space. When a therapist is culturally competent or culturally humble, it means that they're able to really recognize that their client is going through something that may be cultural related, whether it's like talking to spirits, being aware that some cultures have that, or whether it's 
an actual mental health condition of hearing voices and hallucinations. So it's kind of being aware that, okay, there are things that go on beyond the textbook of what I'm taught as a therapist, because a lot of the things that we're taught as therapists are a result of white people. They created the mold. So it's important for therapists to really be aware that there's about cultures beyond the textbook. Yes, yes, which is very, very important. What you just mm-hmm. said is so important because somebody may say they're hearing voices. Mm-hmm. And uh, in African spirituality, is like some other forces are talking. Yeah. And then that person get diagnosed that said, oh, they might be schizophrenic or something like right. that. Right, yeah. Uh, oh, you're schizophrenic. Let's get you on medication. Yeah. 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 So you have to understand that. And that's when someone like you mm-hmm. will be beneficial later on. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Push for this. Mm-hmm. You know, and many who is going to go into this field who are also maybe children of immigrants, you know, who could actually explore that area and uh, see what they can come up with in terms of understanding that when you are actually treating somebody of different culture coming in front of you, there's mm-hmm. certain things that you have to be sensitive to because if not, it might turn them away. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember listening to one podcast one time, say, this guy was talking about ACE. Is it ACE? Oh yeah, Advanced Childhood Experiences. Experience. Mm-hmm. is based on European white evaluation of trauma, childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. And not even including what African-American actually goes through within their community. Yeah. You heard, how many times have you heard of a gunshot? Right. And the way a black person will show anxiety may be different from the way a white child will show anxiety. Right. Absolutely. And oftentimes black children are misdiagnosed with opposition defiant disorder when really it's a child who may be experiencing some anxieties or Mm -hmm. some dangers at home Mm -hmm. and they're acting out because school is the place where they can escape from their trauma. But oftentimes, yeah, black and brown children are often given diagnosis and mistreatment because of racism. Yeah, that's what it is. But, you know, do you think it's beneficial to actually for the parents to take note of different things? and to seek help at early age? Yeah, I think so. I think it can be beneficial. And maybe that is family therapy. We're working together with the family and the child. I think it's beneficial, especially for immigrant parents, just to have a better understanding of their child because it'll allow them to be introduced to different ways to take care of their children. Being that you also have worked with people who uh, self-medicate themselves, you know, when they're suffering from mental health, can you also highlight to those who may listen to this podcast about the connection between mental illness or mental health? and drug use. Oh, yeah. Well, the connection is that, you know, people who suffer from addiction or so forth or mental health issues, you know, we often forget that people have autonomy. People are allowed to do what they want to do. And there is a connection because often people are self-medicating because of trauma. People are self-medicating because they don't want to take the medication because of the side effects. So it's easier and better to get high versus having to take this medication and having to deal with the tough emotions and the tough traumas. Because a lot of us live with stuff that happened to us in our childhood. 
because those are our formative years. So it's definitely very, very much so connected. And sometimes some medications will create mental health issues such as meth. Meth can create people hearing voices and so forth. And sometimes the way people's brains react to certain drugs, they're just not the same. They're just not the same anymore. And they may just experience hallucinations and so forth and whatnot and depression and mood swings because they were on drugs for so long yeah. or substances, whatever the substance yeah. is. Yeah, because uh, I mean, there's so many, you know, illegal drugs out there that is not being monitored. And uh, I was talking to someone the other day, um, they're talking about uh, marijuana being mixed with different kind of drugs. Uh, drugs, yeah, cocaine, heroin, whatever, yeah. They don't even know, they didn't even know that it was mixed and everybody's brain. We all have different structures. Some people are like, marijuana, I'm fine with it, but you know, some people's brains, when they take marijuana, they react differently. And I'll share my uncle, that was his drug of choice. And that was something my family never understood. They're like, why is he so addicted to weed? And why is this such a hold on him? Well, if you use too much of anything, you become addicted. You become addicted. Because many people have uh, this concept about uh, mental health medication that the side effects and all this other stuff. But to me, sometimes when you don't know how to advocate for yourself or even speak to your psychiatrist about what are the symptoms that you see from the medication that you're taking. Because one thing I see, doctor may just dish out medication without actually talking to someone. You are not asking the right question. Mm. In many cases, with people of color, we don't even question doctors. Right, right, I remember right. I used to have a doctor that he was so funny all the time when I see him, we talk all the time. You know, even when I go for my checkup and everything, he would mm-hmm. talk to me how you're feeling and tell him all kinds of stuff. We even talk so many other things. Then they change him, he left the place. Then mm-hmm. they gave me another doctor. And this doctor just looked at me as if I'm a piece of uh, something to just examine and say, go about your business. And I yeah. said, oh, you have this. Because if I ask him question, he will just give me one or two sentences. No, I yes. need to interact that I could feel comfortable and ask questions. And mm-hmm. I think that is actually affecting people of African descent, whereby we don't even know how to advocate for ourselves. Is it because of the lack of knowledge or education about how to advocate for yourself? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, the medical system is racist, right? And also the system is hard to navigate. And sometimes you just take what you can get. But I think you are right. I definitely talk about that in my book, how it's important for black people to advocate for their health and to not just take what comes to you. If you don't like how a doctor is responding to you, get a new one, find a new one. And it can be frustrating though, because it can be hard to find a doctor. Cause once you find one, you're like, oh, okay, finally. But then, you know, doctors are humans and the medical system is just as racist. I mean, it is systemically racist from medical school. So that can be hard. 
but it's important you know you have to do your own research and then you have to ask the right questions but you're right I feel like sometimes black people are afraid to ask just because we feel like doctors have a certain authority and I think many generations ago doctors were the authority they they certainly were they were the authority when it came to health but I think we are realizing now that doctors are practicing medical professionals (laughs) literally they are practicing medical professionals so it is okay to say something but it's hard though because we see stories of black women dying from not getting the right treatment because no one would listen to her no one would listen to their pain Mm -hmm. so it's hard but it's very important And I always encourage clients and people to ask, ask, talk to the doctor about what's going on. And if the doctor is not listening, get a new one. And then something that I see among the white community that we don't do, there's a lot of support group for different diagnoses anyway. And that's where they share information. They share different ideas Mm -hmm. of how they are dealing with their own issue and then they move it from there. So finally, what advice would you give to Africans in the diaspora dealing with mental illness or drug addiction or have Mm -hmm. a family member who may be diagnosed with uh, mental illness? I would say seek support. Support is out there, whether it's friends, whether it's a professional, you are not alone. You're not alone. Even if no one is talking about what you are particularly going through, you're not alone. I guarantee you there is someone out there who understands what you are going through and you're not confused. You're not confused about the way you feel. Whatever you're going through, it's real. It's valid. And you deserve to get the support you need to get you to feel better. Thank you so much for that. So, and I understand you you have a book coming up next year, coming out next year. Mm-hmm. And it will be published by Simon and Schuster, titled Self-Care for Black Women. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So can you give our audience a sneak preview of the book? Yeah, so it is a guide. So it's not a book that you sit down and read. It's filled with 150 practical tips for the mind, body, and soul. I broke it up into three parts. Each section has 50 tips that you can try when you're feeling stressed, anxious, when you just need to go, need a pick-me-up. Well, I think to survive. So for Black people, I'll say for Black women, self care is not just spa days and massages you know it's deeper than that because being black and being a woman in this society is very traumatic every day you're encountering someone who questions your existence you're encountering someone who wants to make you feel less than and so in my book i talk about things like advocating for your health like you know, addressing certain issues of racism, validating your feelings, real ways that apply to Black women on how to practice self-care. So if you're anxious, depressed, pick it up. There'll be something in there that you can take action. And I think we are in a period now where Black women as a whole are putting themselves first. We are, it's our way of fighting back against the system that has oppressed us for so long. It's taking care of ourselves putting ourselves first. So when is the book coming out anyway? Uh, January 11th. So oh, wow. I, I hope you come back. <laughs> 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 when you do your book signing everywhere else, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, maybe you could come back and we have more conversation on it. So thank you so much. So how can our listener connect with you online or seek your professional help if there's any that they need? Well, um, I don't have a private practice, so you can't 
I don't provide services unless you're in the Los Angeles area, but you can follow me online on TikTok, on Instagram, on Twitter at Oludara Adia. So O-L-U-D-A-R-A-A-D-E-E-Y-O. Oh, thank you so much. So Pansa Pansa is normalizing conversation about the importance of seeking professional therapy and counseling for members of our community when the need arrives. As we publicly discuss issues within our community were shredding away stigma associated with uncomfortable dialogue, such as mental health and drug addiction. I really want to thank you, Oludara Ade Eyo, for this wealth of knowledge you brought to our audience regarding the importance of this subject on seeking mental health care and disbanding the stigma associated with Seeking mental health. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. And I hope you're going to have your own private practice so that, you know, no, it's coming soon, (laughs) (laughs) especially focusing on immigrant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ponza Ponza Live podcast. We hope to have you back with us in the next episode as we continue to explore the nuances of the African immigrant experience. If you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at talk at ponsoponso.org. That is T-A-L-K at P-A-N-S-A, P-A-N-S-A dot org. And follow us on Instagram at ponsa.ponsoforum. Until next time, remember to spread kindness and love. Thank you and take care of yourself.